So tonight, the rest of the story, which you probably already knew, but Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those three specifically, not Daniel, because Daniel's somewhere else on the king's business, it looks like, at least that's what appearance would be. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, last week we left them off. They've just made King Nebuchadnezzar super mad. And if you remember, they made him really mad because they said, hey, king, look, that's a nice, gigantic, super skinny disproportionate statue that you set up of yourself, and that's cool that, well, no, it's not cool that you want everybody to fall down and worship it because that's, that's idol worship, uh, but we're not going to fall down and worship it, that's for sure. And the king said, well, hold on, remember the pipes, the triers, the, the ligons, wait a minute, ligon, ligers, Tri- all those instruments, they were played at the same time, and those three did what? They stayed standing, and so the king brought them back before him and said, maybe you didn't, maybe you didn't get this, but I'm going to give you a second chance, which was even a God thing right there, giving them a platform for a second chance because the king had no reason to give them a second chance. He should have just executed them. But as it were, in God's plan, he records this second opportunity where now these three are directly before the most powerful man in the world. And he says, look, I'm going to play the music again and then fall down and worship. And they interrupt him and they say, look, king, don't even bother. Have your trumpeteers and your bagpipers save their breath because we're not going to do it. We're not going to fall down and worship your image. And that's where we left off. And the the king, it said at the end last time we were together, was enraged. Well, tonight we find out the rest of the story. And maybe this is the most familiar story in the book of Daniel. I think this one's even more familiar, thanks to VeggieTales, than Daniel in the lion's den. I think the majority of people that you run into who have spent any time around the church or the Bible, if you ask them about Daniel, what do you remember from the book of Daniel? They're going to talk about the the three in the the fiery furnace. They're going to talk about this story that we're reading, that we're finishing up tonight. And sometimes we think about this story and we think about, well, it's a story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's a story about their boldness, their courage, their resolve. It's a story about them refusing to bow the knee to Nebuchadnezzar. It's a story about them worshiping God and God alone. It's a story about them and their faith and how God responded to their faith. And while all those things are true to an extent, this really isn't a story about them. It's a story about their God. So what I want us to do tonight as we're together is to focus on what God does here. And to focus on the strength of God, not necessarily the boldness and courage of these three. We hit that a little bit last week. And and there's something commendable there, although I would argue that unless God is empowering that boldness and that courage within them, they're never going to the furnace to begin with. But what I want us to do is rather than focus on these three men or young men at the time, I want us to focus on their God and how God responds and what God does as God takes center stage in the rest of Daniel chapter 3. So if you're not there already, grab your Bibles, open them up, Daniel chapter 3, and we're going to start in verses 19 through 23. We took the first 18 verses last week, and if you're wondering, okay, where are we? They've just told Nebuchadnezzar, hey, king, we're not going to do this. We're not going to bow down, so get the furnace ready. So we pick up in verse 19, and we read down through verse 23. It says this, then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. And the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and the other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. 
because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire killed those who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Even reading that again, just noticing how many times it repeats, three or four times, the burning, fiery furnace, the burning, fiery furnace, the burning, fiery furnace. And even in the, the beginning, there's the, 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 the wordplay. When it says that the king became enraged, that fury, it's language that, that speaks to it and a, a hot anger. It says his expression changed. And I love Daniel because of how vivid it is. And so the king, you can just see he's got this smirk on his face. And he's looking at them going, okay, I'll, I'll give you guys another chance. And look how patient and you know, magnificent I am in my loving kindness. And I'm slow to anger and everything else. And he's going, look how awesome I am because I'm going to give these three another chance. And they cut him off midstream. They say, look, we're not doing it. And you just see his expression change. And some of you have seen that in mom and dad's faces sometimes, right? Or some of you have seen that in a sibling's face. You do something, they're smiling, everything's great, and then they find out that you did something to them or you disobeyed them somehow, and you can just see it on their face. It changes. And you're going, oh no, this is not going to go well. Well, that's what happens here. The, the expression of the king, the expression of the most powerful man in all of the world changes against these three. And you can also probably picture all of the the rest of the, the satraps, the rest of the rulers who were jealous of these three will come to find out. You can picture them kind of in the corner going, oh man, they're going to get it. Like these guys, now it's going to happen. Watch, man, this is going to be the best entertainment we've had in a long time. We haven't seen somebody burned in the furnace in like years. This is going to be awesome what we're about to see here. They're pulling up their, their, their lawn chairs. They're getting their popcorn ready. And then in verse 19, it says that Nebuchadnezzar ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. Well, this was not like a, a dial a furnace thermostat on the side. And, and really, there was no temperature gauge for this thing. So when we read that it was to be heated seven times more than it was usually heated, the, the word, number seven in Scripture, without getting into num numeric symbolism and all this weird kind of mystical stuff that, that floats around out there that really we should stay away from, the number seven in the Bible does suggest completion. We can safely land there. It su suggests fullness, and so when Nebuchadnezzar says, I want it heated seven times, basically what, what Daniel is saying is this furnace was heated to its full capacity. There was no way that this could have been made any hotter than it was. And then in verse 20, he goes on, and, and not only has the, the furnace been heated to the fullness that it could be heated, but now he orders some of his mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so now it's not just his servants that are binding these three. It's not just anybody that's binding these three. Nebuchadnezzar goes out and gets some of his Navy SEALs to come in and do the job here. And he wants them to be the ones that come in and prepare these three to be thrown into the furnace. His mighty men. This is Nebuchadnezzar bowing up. This is Nebuchadnezzar who's just been humiliated in front of all of his kingdom. This is Nebuchadnezzar who's just been defied by these three young Israelite youths. This is Nebuchadnezzar who is incredulous that they would not fall down and worship his God. And now he's saying, I'll show you who I am. And so Nebuchadnezzar is flexing here. He's bowing up. And so he brings in his mighty men to bind them and to tie them up. And then verse 21, it says that he then went on to bind them. Specifically, it says in their clothing. These three men were bound in their cloaks, in their tunics, in their hats, in their other garments. And they were taken and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. And this was, again, another act of cruelty on Nebuchadnezzar's part because the, 
the clothing would insulate them for, for a, a time at least, but then the clothing itself would catch fire and they would burn from the outside in. And so the king was looking to exact the most torture and the, the most pain that he possibly could on these three. So they're tied up by the Navy SEALs. They're tied up in their clothing. I mean, their end seems sure. And like I said, when I mentioned at the beginning of seven times that this furnace was just blazing hot. In fact, it says in the text that the, the fire was coming out from the furnace. The furnace was overheated, verse 22. The flame was, was shooting out from the furnace itself. And it seems that in times prior, most likely the men who would carry out the king's executions with throwing people into a furnace, imagine having that job, by the way, but it, 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 it seems that in times past, they would have been able to put on some sort of protective clothing. But the king's order is so urgent and his anger is so fierce that this furnace is blazing so hot that he says, okay, you three, take them up and throw them into the furnace. And as the, the servants of the king are taking them to toss them into the furnace, the furnace is so hot that even these three men carrying them to the furnace, they die before they're even able to get to the mouth to throw these three into it. Right, so the, the miracle even begins before they hit the, the fire. Some of you have been to campouts and you've been around a bonfire and you, you've had that experience where you're like, okay, I can get this close, but I can't get any closer because if I get any closer, dude, I can smell the hair burning off my legs. Guys, ladies, you probably haven't hopefully had that experience. But you're like, you can sense the heat. It's overwhelming, right? Well, it was so hot according to what is a historical record, which is what is it's so important for us to remember as we read the Bible, that these men that take Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego up, they die just from the residual heat coming off of the furnace. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fall, it says, down into the furnace. Just to get a picture of what we're talking about here, right? Because I don't know if you guys ever watched the movie Home Alone. But when Kevin goes downstairs into the basement and there's the furnace down there, and it's like, and he goes, shut up, and it stops. You guys remember that scene? That's not what we're talking about when we're talking about a blazing, fiery furnace, okay? This is more like if your parents have one of those pinion wood burners or those kind of kettle burners in the backyard that have the, the chimney that goes up, the, the skinny chimney, think that like on huge, massive scale. Most likely built into a hillside that would have allowed these men to, to go up to the top of the furnace. So it's got an outlet at the top, and it's got something that they're able to feed the wood in on the side. So the men take them up and they take them to the top of this hill to the opening of the furnace. And those men that were with them, however many there were, they die. And then these three are left and they, they simply tumble down into the bottom of this furnace. It's a drastic scene. It's a scary scene. And as we reset, I mean, Daniel was not there. Sorry, I keep saying Daniel. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're given the opportunity even to avoid this. This is probably in the proximity of where the statue is. So it's not like these three were unaware of what was going on. It's not like these three thought that they were just going to get their hands slapped. They knew what was there. They knew what was awaiting. And they defy the king and the king becomes enraged. And now even I would say there's another opportunity here where their faith is on the line, where they have an opportunity to say, okay, we were just kidding, king. We see you're serious now. We'll bow down. Can we just have a, can you just throw us in jail maybe and, and not in the furnace? But the king's enraged that the furnace is heated up. The strongest soldiers bind them. And the whole time, these three are just ready to go. Ready to go. See, Nebuchadnezzar, again, was, was flexing here. He was bowing up, and he was trying to make sure that everybody understood what would happen if they ever decided to defy him. 
And in bowing up and flexing his muscles, he's trying to impress men. But the one thing that he didn't understand is that God was never impressed by anything that Nebuchadnezzar was going to do. All of the might, all of the power, all of the flex from Nebuchadnezzar didn't do a thing to intimidate God. Point number one tonight is this. Recognize God's not impressed with the world's flex. Recognize God's not impressed with the world's flex. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar is so angry. If you jump back up and and go back up in the text there, he says this. He says in verse, uh, sorry, verse 15. After he said, look, if, once you hear the music, fall down and worship. If you do that, great. And then notice what he says in the second half of verse 15. He says, but if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? That's the beginning of Neb's flex against God. When he says, who is the God who's going to deliver you from my hands? Nebuchadnezzar is saying, I am stronger. I am more powerful. I am more amazing than any God that could ever stand against me. And he's directly challenging all of the gods, but specifically the God of the Bible. And I don't know about you, and I don't know what happened in the heavenly landscape at this point in time, but I just imagine kind of Jesus, the son, getting up from the the right hand of the throne of the father and kind of cracking his knuckles a little bit, rolling his neck out and kind of smirking at the angelic host going, "Did, did he really just make it this easy for me? See, Neb's bowing up, and guys, the world will bow up at our God. And the world will flex at our God, and the world will flex at you. And you need to understand, when the world flexes at you and pushes at you, they're not pushing at you, they're pushing at your God, and your God is bigger than the world. Right? Greater is the one living in me than the one that's living in the world. This world can oppose us, this world can stand against us, this world can heat its furnace seven times. And bow up, and yet you need to understand that the God that you serve is not phased by that. He's not impressed by that. He's not scared by that. He's not intimidated by that. He's not moved by that. In fact, we could answer Nebuchadnezzar if we were there and say, you want an answer to that, Neb? How about this one? Isaiah chapter 40, verses 12 through 17. What, what is the God like who can stand against you, Nebuchadnezzar? He's like this. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who, who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did God consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, God takes up the coastlands like dust, like fine dust. Lebanon, it wouldn't even suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations, including you, Nebuchadnezzar, are as nothing before him, and they are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. That's the God, Neb, who's going to stop you. Who is the God who can deliver me from you from my hand? This God. So when the world stands up against you, students, and you're tempted to say or wonder or question, man, God, are you able? The answer is like we just sang. Yes, God is able. He is able. Nothing is going to thwart him. Grab your Bibles. Open them up to Job. Let's go to Job. Job 38. 
If my announcements weren't so long, maybe we'd read more of this. Job, if nothing else, please, please, please go home and read Job 38 through 40 tonight. Just do it. Nebuchadnezzar, you want to know who it is that can deliver you from, deliver these three from your hand? Here it is. God is addressing Job now. And he starts in 38 too. He says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Because Job's been asking, God, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? I'm innocent. I'm not, what did I do? God, what are you doing? And God says, dress for action like a man and I will question you and you will make it known to me. He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Who stretched out the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who, Job, who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds, the garment for the sea and thick darkness, its swaddling band. Where were you, Job? And prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no further. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Hey, Job, have you commanded the morning since your days began? Have you caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? Job, the, the dawn, it's, it's changed like clay under a seal, and its features stand out like a garment from the wicked. Their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is, is broken. Job, did you do that? Job, have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Job, have, have the gates of death been revealed to you? Have you seen the gates of deep darkness, Job? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Chapter 39. Do you know, Job, do you know when the mountain goats give birth? I think it's like 2.30 on Thursday. Do you observe the calving of the the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? Do you know the time when they give birth, when they crouch and bring forth their offspring? I mean, God goes on and on and on. If you've read Job, this is that part where you're like, okay, whoa, all right. Verse 19 of chapter 39. Do you give the the, the horse its might, Job? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. He paws the valley and exults in his strength and he goes out to meet weapons. God goes on and on and on and on and on and on and he's saying, look, can you do this? Chapter 41, can you draw out the Leviathan with a fish hook? And it leads eventually to Job getting the point. He says this in Job 42. He says, look, I know God that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now I see. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Who is the king? Who is the God that can deliver you from my hand? Really? Now, but I don't think you want to know that answer. He's going to. And still, again, this question is asked. This question is asked today by the world in which we live. And so, y'all, let me encourage you, exhort you, plead with you. Don't be afraid because of who's in the Oval Office. Don't be afraid because of who's going to make laws and policies. Don't be afraid because of what the culture defines for you or identifies for you. Don't be afraid. Don't, uh, don't be tempted that anyone out there is going to do anything that's going to thwart God's plan. Don't be tempted that 
you're not going to be able to, to keep going. Maybe some of you even come from homes where you have unbelieving parents, and it's just hard for you to be here because they just don't understand why this matters or why you don't want to, to go out and, and party with your friends. Maybe Just press on and, and remember that God is able. If you guys are, are in circumstances with your work or circumstances where you're being pressured to compromise, and you don't know, man, if, if I stand up and if I don't compromise, I'm going to lose my job. Or if, if I don't compromise, I'm going to lose this relationship. And you're sitting there going, man, what do, I, what do I do? Let me exhort you, plead with you, beg you. Trust that God is able to, to take the flex, to take the bow of your boss or your boyfriend or your girlfriend if, if they continue to press up against you and say, who's the God that's going to deliver you from my hands? On the flip side, maybe you're sitting out there tonight and you've been thinking to yourself all along, man, I've got things in my control. Who's the God that can stand up against my plans? Well, y'all, let me encourage you not to be fooled into thinking that you're bigger than God or that you know better than God. A common refrain that we have in our household with our youngest uh, to our oldest is, look, you guys really don't control anything. And that may sound cruel, but it's true. When my 11-year-old wants to bow up and flex on his little siblings, I'll often step in and remind him, Joshua, you are not the parent. You are not in control. You don't have authority over them at all. I've got the authority. Guys, some of you need to remember, God has the authority. Is he able? Yes, he's able. When the world bows up against you, when the world flexes on you, just remember, God is not impressed. God is not moved. He's not afraid. He's not thrown off. Nebuchadnezzar's faith, it's being shown more and more, was a faith in himself, his own might. But he didn't take into account the fact that God is bigger and that God's not impressed. Pick up again at verse 24 as our story continues. These three have been fallen bound into the furnace and we're still going, okay, yeah, but God's not, not impressed with that, but what's going on? Well, let's find out what's going on. Verse 24 through 27, read it with me. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and he rose up in haste and he declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, true, O king. And he answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire and the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair on their heads was not singed their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Have you ever been absolutely sure of something only to have it all fall apart? For me, and you've probably heard me talk about this, it's one of the most painful sports days that anyone will ever live through, ever, 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 ever. But I'm a, a Texas Rangers fan, and in 2011, you baseball fans know where I'm going with this, the Rangers were playing the Cardinals, hiss, in the World Series, and they had the Cardinals down to the final strike in the game, game six. Not just were they one out away, but one strike away. 
Joshua was 2011. He was less than one when this was going on. He was like six months old. And yet I was sitting there going, no, he was two years old. He was born in 2009, not 2011. I'm looking back at my wife for confirmation going, did I get that right? Yeah, he was two. Anyways, he was asleep. And I told Amanda, I'm going to get him up. He's going to witness history. And instead, he witnessed his daddy broken in, in the fetal position on the couch that night. Because David Freeze came up to bat and hit a line drive over Nelson Cruz's head. And the rest was just, it was over. Believe it or not, later in that game, they, the Rangers got down to one strike away from winning the World Series again. And again, they choked the game away. But something that was it was a, a certainty, at least in my mind, that this was going to be the outcome, and then it totally fell apart. If you've ever been there, then you can resonate with where Nebuchadnezzar is. It says in verse 24 that he was astonished. I love the emotion of Daniel too, right? I mean, he's enraged, his expression changes, now it says he's astonished, and he goes up to his, his boys there, his servants, and he says to them, uh, hey, did we not cast three men? bound into the fire? And they answered and said, true, O king. And he said, but I, I see four walking around in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. Again, this book is so vivid. In verse 24, I imagine Nebuchadnezzar having just sat down in his lawn chair with his royal lemonade in his hand to watch them die. And all of a sudden, he looks into the furnace and jumps up and spits out his lemonade and runs as close as he can get without being consumed by the heat of the furnace himself. And he's rubbing his eyes as he's looking in there. And then all of a sudden he turns and calls his, his cronies over. And he says, look, hey, didn't we only throw three guys in there? And I love that that's his question. And you can tell that he's in shock because it's as though if, no, King, we actually threw four in there. He would have been totally okay with the fact that they were just up and walking around in the midst of the fire and nothing was, was harming them. Like he's worried about how many there were, Right. But he finds out, no, King, we, we threw three. And he's like, well, where did this other guy come from? And oh, yeah, by the way, they're, they're also not suffering. They're not screaming. They're not dying. They're walking around in the midst of the fire. What in the world is going on? Maybe you're wondering that too. And, and we have to ask ourselves, because the question is begged, who was the fourth person in the fire? And there are some, in fact, Jewish commentators, because they're Jewish, believe that this was an angel, just a messenger from God that was sent to protect them and to uh, keep them from harm. But for us who are now um, on the backside of the cross, who are now followers of Jesus, we would say that this was more than just an angel. This was actually Jesus. That this is the second member of the Trinity. This is what we would refer to as a pre-incarnate, which just means before the incarnation, before taking on flesh. This is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus with them. The text calls him and refers to him as an angel of the Lord was with them. Anytime we see the phrase angel of the Lord in scripture, it's oftentimes pointing to a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. It happens in Genesis 22, 11. The angel of the Lord prevents Abraham from sacrificing Isaac. In Exodus 3, 2, the angel of the Lord appears to Moses in the burning bush. In Judges 2, the angel of the Lord appears and speaks to the Israelites as God himself. In 1 Chronicles 21, I know your favorite book, 1 Chronicles 21, 16 through 17, David refers specifically to the angel of the Lord as God. And then even Nebuchadnezzar's own words when he says, look, the, the appearance of the fourth was like one who was one of the sons of God, right? And so we think that this was actually Jesus who showed up to spare them, deliver them, preserve, preserve them, and keep them. Regardless, the king sits down to watch them die under his power and his might. 
And instead he's shocked and astonished because he looks in there and he sees that they're not dying. They're not screaming. They're not burning alive. They're walking around in the fire. What had happened here, y'all, is Neb's might had taken a backseat to the might of God, the power of God. The power of Nebuchadnezzar had just simply been wasted words and empty threats because God chose to intervene. And y'all, here's the thing. When God chooses to intervene, nothing can stop him. No amount of earthly power, no amount of earthly might, no amount of circumstances can stop God when God acts. And God chose to act then and showed that his power was stronger than Neb's. Point number two tonight is this. Strengthen your faith knowing God is able, like we just sang. Strengthen your faith knowing that he is able. And I would say, ask yourself, do you really believe that he is able? Whatever you are up against, no matter how long you've been praying the same thing, no matter how long you've been wrestling with the Lord over something, no matter how long you've been begging and pleading, do you still believe that he is able? It's easy to sing. It's so hard to live. Do you believe this? Jeremiah 32, 32, 27. Do you believe it? When God says, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh, is anything too hard for me? This is a rhetorical question, implying a negative answer here. In other words, the Lord is saying, nothing is too hard for me. Do you believe that, students? Do y'all believe that nothing is too hard for God? Luke 137, nothing will be impossible with God. Do you believe that? Nothing will be impossible with God. These are not qualified statements. Matthew 19, 26, do you believe this? That Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Do you believe that? Do you believe it when God says this to us? Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Do you believe that God will strengthen you, that God will help you, that God will uphold you? And not only will, but already has been. Do you believe that. Not knowing what to do in the face of all this, the king approaches the furnace and, and orders them to come out of the furnace, which is a comical scene because no doubt there's other people around again to watch this. And all of a sudden they see their king get up, walk up to the door of the furnace and say, hey guys, come out. And if the crowd didn't have the same view that Nebuchadnezzar had, they're looking at themselves like their king has lost their mind, his mind, right? They're going, what do you mean come out? Some of them are probably thinking, we don't want them to come out. Because even if they're able to crawl out, imagine what they're going to look like. They've just been in this fiery furnace. We don't want them to come out. Anyways, he's yelling into a fiery furnace that's just killed people on the outside of it so the people on the inside of it come out. Clue number one, that God is doing something here, right? And then I, I love the simplicity of the text because it simply says what? It says, then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. <laughs> what would that have been like to be those three in the furnace and be like, okay, who's going out first? You go. You're the oldest. All right, thanks, man. 
hey, can you give me a boost? It's, this thing's kind of high. I don't think they meant for anybody to climb out of this thing. They didn't really think about an exit plan to this furnace thing. Yeah, I'll give you a boost. They're stumbling out, kind of falling out of the furnace, right? And then they stand up. And what must that have been like for them? I mean, right? Like, this is crazy for them too, not just for Nebuchadnezzar. Like, they've had maybe 45 seconds to adjust to the whole fact that, hey, we're in the middle of a fiery furnace and none of us are hurting right now. And there's this other guy here. I'm sorry, I didn't catch your name. Jesus, was it? Oh, wait, the king needs our attention. Let's get out. I mean, can you put yourself in their shoes? Imagine what must have been going through everybody's mind, right? And then it says they came out and... And I love the, the, the added little bit of information there that it says that there wasn't even the smell of smoke on their heads. Their hair was not singed and their cloaks were not harmed and the no smell of fire had come upon them. If you've ever been camping for longer than 20 seconds around a campfire, everything about you stinks like smoke and not just your clothes. Like you have to take like 10 showers to not smell like campfire anymore. And these guys were in the middle of the furnace with all of the wood and all of the flames and everything else. And they walk out and there's no evidence of fire anywhere on their bodies. God is making it clear that he delivered them. Nobody's going to be able to say, well, maybe they just found a pocket of coolness inside the furnace. Maybe they just ran around really fast and the fire never got them. No, this is clear to everybody watching Okay, Nebuchadnezzar, you asked the question, who is the God who is able to deliver from your hand? And I think you got your answer because it would appear to be their God. I mean, this is amazing. And y'all, some of you have faith in God, but not the faith that he's worthy of when you consider that this is the same God that you serve. This is the same God that is your God. And some of you give him lip service, but you don't have the faith in him that he is worthy of. Whatever you're up against, God can take your faith in him to come through in the face of that. There's never a situation that you will bring to God that he's going to tap out and say, that's beyond me. And so if I can press on you a little bit tonight, y'all, some of you need to repent for a lack of faith in God's ability to come through for you. That you have limited God thinking to yourself, well, sure, he came through for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He came through for Daniel. He came through for King David. He came through, and you can run through the list, and you can make all those statements. He came through, and then you, you're, you're holding this one three-letter word behind your back, waiting for just the, the right moment. What, what three-letter word is that? But. Anytime you're going to talk about what God is able to do and you have the word but, you don't understand God. God is able to do anything and everything. Some of you need to repent right now, even tonight, from a fear that God's plan is not going to work out for your life. Some of you need to repent tonight from this angst over the fact that you're not sure that God really is working all things together for your good. Some of you need to repent tonight from holding God hostage to your plan instead of saying to God, your will be done, even if that doesn't mean that it's my will that's actually done. 
Some of y'all tonight need to repent from a pride that you think in the back of your mind, okay, I know, God, you're able, but let me help you out in this regard. I, I probably need to help you with this. Y'all, what are you facing that's more difficult for God to come through for you than what these three faced? Let me ratchet it up. All of us were facing an eternity in hell. All of us were facing an eternity in hell with a bill that was handed to us that said payment due upon receipt, and that payment was your life. It's a death sentence with your name at the top of it. And yet God came through for you in a greater way even than delivering these three by delivering you through the cross. And if we're tempted to say, okay, God, I know you came through for me there, but I don't think you can come through for me here, what you're saying is what I'm up against now is greater than what I was up against when I was staring eternity in hell in the face because of my sin, and you did the unthinkable by coming and dying on the cross for me. So whatever that is for you, whether that's maybe a a desire to be married, a desire for the job that you want, a desire to be healthier than you are, a desire to finish school. And you're just up against it and you're up against difficult circumstances. You're going, God, how are you ever gonna come through for me? Or maybe it's you're just looking at the world going, man, we've got all kinds of craziness going on in the world right now. God, how are you ever gonna help us to survive the, the, the politicians that are in office because he's bigger, because he's stronger, because he's God and they're not. Because they do nothing apart from his will. Strengthen your faith knowing that God is able. He's able to deliver you from the undeliverable. No matter what you are up against. And you're going to talk about this in in small groups though. Because there is that question that we have to ask and say, okay, but what if these three never came out of the furnace? And what if Daniel never came out of the lion's den? Because some don't. Is God still able? We would have to conclude yes, but he chose not to. And then we have to wrestle with why. And that's where some of you are at tonight. It's wrestling with, okay, God, I know you're able to do what I need done, but yet you're not doing what I need or want done. And I don't know why. And there'll be some time to discuss that in small group. What do you do with that? Part of the answer is found in the rest of this text because Nebuchadnezzar responds after this and makes a public proclamation in the immediate aftermath. He says this in verse 28. He says, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I make a decree any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach Meshach and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Nebuchadnezzar got his answer to his question, who is the God? There's no other God except for this one able to rescue in this way. 
Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. From chapter 3, verse 17, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego onward, they had made it clear that, look, king, God is going to deliver us from your hand, either through our death or through bringing us out of this furnace. He's, he's going to deliver us. He's able and he will. And now that they are delivered, Nebuchadnezzar has no question about the, the power and the one worthy of the, the glory behind this deliverance. Again, in verse 28, blessed be the God, not blessed be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except for their own. Y'all, Nebuchadnezzar's response says so much about the character of these three young Israelite men because it says that they were clear about who was to get the glory. And it wasn't them, it was God. Nebuchadnezzar knew when they came out of the furnace that it wasn't that there was something spectacular about them, but it was spectacular about their God. And so he responds the way that hopefully the world will respond when they see us radically obeying God, and that is by glorifying God. See, guys, that's part of the answer to what happens when God is able but doesn't. It's, it's concluding, okay, God, it's, it's more for your glory that you don't right now than that you would answer in the way that I would want you to answer. And that's tough. And that's hard. And there are the times that we want to say and throw the fist in the air and say, yes, but that's not fair. But here's the thing. At the end of the day, it's not about you and it's not about fairness. You know what you have as far as a right that is born inherent within you? You have the right to die and go to hell and suffer under the eternal wrath of God. That is the only and sole inherent right to humanity. We have zero other inherent rights, constitution aside. The constitution is man-made, not God-made. Your right is to be born, to die, and to suffer in hell for your sin. It's only by God's grace that he saves you. And why does he save you? He saves you for his glory. But he doesn't save you for his glory and then say, okay, and now let me make your life about you. No, he saved you for his glory. And now he's going to say, and now I'm still going to make your life about me and my glory. And you think, well, that's egomaniacal. Yes, he's God. He can't not be all about himself. If God was about anyone other than himself, whatever he was about or whoever he was about, that would be God. See, the very definition of God is there's no one higher there's no one worthy of more glory. And so if you're sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, well, it should be about me and I don't like that it's not about me, that you don't get the Bible, you don't get God, you don't get the gospel, right? The, the, the glory of the gospel, the good news of the gospel is that God in his forbearance, in his patience, in his love for us, man, saved us from hell so that we get to be along for the ride of his glory. But look, it's still about his glory. It's not about you. Well, God, it's not fair that I'm up against this. It's not fair that I've prayed my whole life and this hasn't been answered the way that I want it to be answered. I'm sorry, but God is looking at you saying, I'm not gonna answer it that way because I'm more glorified in not doing than I would be if I did. I'm able, but I'm just not going to because it's about my glory and it's my plan, not your plan. And these three are in the fire and they come out from the fire and Nebuchadnezzar's like, man, your God is amazing. Y'all, when you radically obey God, make sure that that's the world's response to you and not, wow, look at how impressive you guys are. You've got deep convictions. I'm glad that you believe in something. That's so commendable. No, it's not. No, it's not. The only reason I believe is because God opened my eyes to believe. 
right? Man, the only reason I obey is because God's given me a spirit and empowered me to obey him. Because my flesh doesn't want to. Make sure, y'all, that you are putting God's glory on display. That is what your life is about. That is what every single facet of your life is about until you breathe your last. And in fact, as you die, that's what your death is about too. Which is our final point tonight. Make God's glory the aim of your living and your dying. Make God's glory the aim of your living and your dying. As these three went into the furnace, they didn't know they were going to come out. And what were they doing? They were saying, we're going to glorify God through our death. We're going to glorify him whether he delivers us or not. And how did they do that? Their last words were, King, do what you want. Know that our God is able to deliver us from this furnace. But even as, as you're pulling our toasted crispy ashes out of this, this furnace, know that God has, in fact, delivered us from you, King. See, they, they went to their death focused on glorifying God. It's like Count Zinzendorf, who I, I feel bad every time I quote him because I, I, I'm undoing his desire. He said this, I want to preach Christ, die, and be forgotten. I need to just stop telling who that quote is from so that the guy can have that aim reached. I want to preach Christ, die, and be forgotten. I want to glorify God, die, and be forgotten, right? That should be your aim in life, not to make a name for yourself. The Apostle Paul, he says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed at all, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. How, Paul? Whether by life or by death. Again, he wrote that in Philippi in prison with the death sentence waiting for him. I mean, I, I'm, 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 it's my eager expectation that Christ is going to be glorified in my body, whether through my life or through my death. And then he goes on right after that to say that famous statement, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Y'all, can you say tonight that you're eager to glorify God through your living and your dying? Don't just nod your head. Can you actually say that you are eager to glorify him through your life and through your death? Is God's glory the most important thing to you or is it something else? If it's something else, then whatever that is, that's your God. Another way to think about this is this. If you had to step inside the fiery furnace tonight, would you do it? And if not, what would hold you back? What would tonight keep you from stepping into the furnace? Or could you go to the stake like Hooper that we talked about last week and say, you know what, you don't need to, to, to bound me, bind me to the stake. I'm, I'm going to meet my creator. I'll gladly just stand in the fire. Could you do that? Y'all, I'm not saying that God is going to require your life from you for his glory, but I'm saying that he might. And are you ready for that? Again, that's not a switch that comes with the diagnosis that you've got stage four cancer and you've got a month to live. That's not a switch that flips when the, the drunk driver careens into oncoming traffic and you're the car that they hit head on. That's not a switch that flips with an aneurysm that nothing else can detect, attacks your brain, and you end up collapsing and dying on the spot. There are no do-overs with your death. And if you want your death to matter, it's going to matter as long as it's lived in the way and executed in the way and carried out in a way that glorifies God. Which only comes if you're living a life that glorifies him.
Are you more about his glory than your glory? Can you say that everything in my life is prepared to be used by him for his glory at a moment's notice? Everything in my life. God, you can have my singleness. If you want me to be single for the rest of your life, God, you can have it for your glory. God, you can have my family. You can strip away my family from me, God. And it's, if it's for your glory, then you can have it. God, you can have my health. If you want my health, God, and you want me to be bedridden for the rest of my life, God, you can have it and it's yours and it's for your glory. God, you can have my freedom. I mean, if it becomes illegal to preach the gospel like that pastor up in Canada, God, I will go to jail if that's what you want me to do, God, and that's going to glorify you. Take my freedom. Students, can you push back and can you look at every facet and every arena of your life and say, God, if you can use this for your glory, use it for your glory because I don't want it for mine. These three come out of the furnace and Nebuchadnezzar knows exactly what to do. Not be impressed with them, but to be impressed with their God. Y'all, as you live out your faith in this world, are people more impressed with you or more impressed with your God? You know, I mentioned Bishop Hooper last week. In 1555, though, there would be two more men. Well, there would be a lot more. But two more specifically who would also give their lives at the stake under the reign of Queen Mary I, Bloody Mary. And their names were Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. And as they were led to the stake and tied to the stake, because they died together, they were both bound to the same stake, back to back. As the fires were lit, they comforted each other. And Thomas Ridley said this to his friend, Hugh Latimer. He said, be of good heart, brother, for God will either assuage the fury of the flame or else strengthen us to abide it. Similar to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God's either going to deliver us from the fury of the flame or strengthen us as we perish, is what he was saying. And then Latimer said this to him. As the fire was lit and the flames began to come up upon them, Hugh Latimer said this to his friend. He said, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. What a perspective on their death. Play the man. We shall today light a candle. With what words as they're being burned alive at the stake. We're with our bodies. Literally, we are lighting a candle in England, which I trust by God's grace shall never be put out because what they were dying for was the glory of God and the purity of the gospel. And they said, we're giving our lives, but we're not giving our lives for no reason. We're giving our lives to exalt our God and to glorify him and to see people point back to this death some, what, 600 years from then, about? No, I don't know math. But to point back to their death and say, look what they did and how awesome God is and how he was glorified through that. Are you guys ready to do that? And maybe you think, man, Pastor Peter, you're just being morose. This is, do we have to talk about death? I mean, come on, nobody's gonna come and arrest us right now, sure. But you guys heard me say this before, and I'll say it again. And nobody's done this yet that I know of that would come up to me and tell me at least. But go walk through any graveyard, anywhere, and you will find tombstones with dates that are shorter than the time of life you've already lived. 
you're not immune from dying young. I don't want any of you to die young, but I want all of you to be ready to die young. And if you're going to be ready to die young, you need to start living for the glory of this God. Daniel 3, what is it all about? Is it about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and their boldness and their courage and their confidence and their faithfulness and their resolve? Yes, but it's more about the God that they trusted, the God that emboldened them, the God that made them courageous, the God that gave them the faith to, re to resist, the God that delivered them, the power of God. Is he able? Yes, he is. 100%, beyond a shadow of a doubt, whatever you're up against, he is able to come through for you. I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna throw... Nathan, what hopefully by my conclusion he already guessed was coming, and that is a request to, um, let's just go back and sing maybe from the bridge through the end of He is Able, if you guys are cool with that. And then we'll go to small groups. Father, we are so thankful for the God that you are and your goodness, your kindness to us. We're so thankful for stories like this one from Daniel chapter 3 where you do deliver. You do come through. You do the miraculous and the wonderful and the amazing that causes us to step back and say, wow, our God is awesome and he's so much bigger, so much stronger, so much more powerful than the world. And the world can flex and the world can bow up. And yet, God, you are not moved. You are not impressed by that. And you are able to do, even as Paul says, I'm reminded of God in, in Ephesians, far more above and beyond anything we ask or imagine or can think. You're able to do more, God. And, and so I know that there are those in this room who have been up against the trial and up against the suffering and up against the heartache and up against the sickness and they've come before you and they've said, God, I know you are able and so I'm asking that you would and yet I know there are so many that have prayed that day in and day out and day in and day out and day in and day out only to, to have the answer to be at least for right now, not now. And Lord, that's hard. And you know it's hard because you know us so well. Psalm 139, you knit us together in our mother's womb. You formed our inward parts. You know a word before it's even on our tongues. God, you know the desires that are within us. You know the, the wants, the needs that we have, and yet you act according to your plan for your glory in our lives. God, and, and I just pray that you would help us to see that your glory is better, that your glory is best, that your glory is preferable, more preferable than anything else that we could face or that we could have in this world. It's, it's more preferable than than relief. It's more pref preferable than fulfillment. It's more preferable than the satisfaction. It's more preferable than the promotion. It's more preferable than the job. It's more preferable than finishing school. It's more preferable than getting married. It's your glory is better than anything else that's out there, Lord. Help us to have that mindset and to live our lives in such a way that we say whether we live or we die, we want people to look at us and see how awesome our God is and not how awesome we are, God. Jesus, you said, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. God, help us do that. Help us do that daily, because we have to do that daily, Lord, because our flesh says, man, I want to make it about me. I want to make it about what I want, what I desire, my glory, God, and give us a relentless pursuit of Jesus that doesn't give our flesh a square inch of our lives, God. Help us not to feel like, man, I need to take a break from this pursuing. It's exhausting. It's hard. It's it's 
troublesome. Yes, it is, Lord, but the rest is coming. The writer of Hebrews says, look, the, the, the rest is still future. If We need to be careful lest we fail to enter that rest. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would strengthen us. Help us to catch the second wind, the third wind, the 50th wind, the 6,000th wind as we are running this race after Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, God, to deliver us from the undeliverable, which was our sin, and is now seated at the right hand of God. We are so thankful for what Jesus has done in our life. God, you are able. We agree with that. We admit that. We confess that. We hold on to that. Lord, help us believe, because so often our faith is weak. Strengthen that faith, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.